Gregory Warner here to tell you about NPR's new international podcast. It's called Rough Translation. Each week, we're going to take you to a different country to hear a story that reflects back on something that we are talking about here in the United States. Maybe get a perspective shift. Travel with us. Rough Translation is on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. We have a 2012 survey here that found 35% of adults in Britain admitted they sleep with a teddy bear or other comfort object. Wow, this is in Britain. In Britain. Uh Uh-huh. So they didn't just admit it. They said, I do. All right, you got me. (laughs) What's wrong with that, sleeping with a teddy? Who doesn't? (laughs) I love my teddy. No, so 35, or other comfort objects. Yes. Yeah, like a a scone. A pint. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a pint. That's more likely, yeah. Yeah, that's a comfort object. Yeah, I have this British guard's hat. (laughs) That, the that fuzzy <laughs> British guard hat. Yeah, that, they love that. They're snugglers. Um, yeah, no, that's it's just shocking statistic. It is. Do you and have a? Do you have a? A, a comfort, a yeah. comfort object. <laughs> yes. I do. I no. I do not. I, I. I. Well, I used to sleep on the living room floor so that the cats could sleep with me, um, but they began territorial peeing, which really takes the joy out of sleeping with them. <laughs> Yeah, especially yeah. if you're the territory. I am the territory. They'll yeah. pee right on me to say to the others, no, she's my special someone. <laughs> so they would have answered yes to this survey, and it would yeah. have been you. Yeah, yeah, I do. I have a, yeah. You're yeah. a comfort object. I've always said to them, what about a label gun? From NPR, it's live from the Poundstone Institute, where we continue our weekly search for all the world's knowledge. We know we left it somewhere. On today's show, a psychological study about sexy scientists. Would Albert Einstein have gone farther if he'd simply worn Spanx? And the five-second rule, is it real or not? Do not eat the taco you just dropped on the subway platform until after you've heard the answer. Plus, David Sedaris joins us to take the PPP, the Poundstone Personality Survey. He talked pretty one day. And that day is today. I'm Chief of Research Adam Felber, and now here's your host, the director of the Poundstone Institute, Paula Poundstone. Welcome, everybody, to the Poundstone Institute. As always, everything you hear from the mouths of our guest is totally backed up with research. As for what I say, not so much. Uh, so, Adam, where does our quest for knowledge begin today? Our first stop today is the five-second rule. I take it you know what the five-second rule is, Paula? Yeah. yeah. Five-second rule. That's where uh, if you drop food on the ground, if you can uh, pick it up uh, within five seconds, then you can eat it, and there's no germs on it, and it's perfectly healthy. You can even take a food uh, that is riddled with germs and drop that on the floor, and if you can pick it up again within five seconds. No, you, you kind of ran past the truth there. The, there's, <laughs> there's nothing about a floor that inherently will make dirty food clean. The, the five-second theory is that if you drop clean food, it remains clean for five seconds, at which point it is just gang tackled by bacteria. Right. After five seconds, that's exact. Prior to that, the bacteria is stunned and cannot climb on the food. <laughs> Joining us now is Dr. Donald Schaffner. He is a food microbiologist, and he put the full force of Rutgers University science labs into studying the five-second rule. Don, welcome to the Poundstone Institute. 
hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for being with us. Okay, everybody is dying to know, does the five-second rule work? It does not. The work that we did showed that the bacteria transferred almost instantaneously, no matter what. That doesn't make sense to me. So I'm a, so I'm a bacterium, and I'm just sitting on the floor, hoping. <laughs> and now, like, like, and now a thing falls on the floor. How do I get on it that fast? Well, you're you're very small, and the distance between the floor and the food is also very small. So you just uh, you're just there. It's interesting because we did show that the longer the food sits on the floor, the more the bacteria transfer. But the thing that's really important is the moisture in the food. So we studied watermelon. If you drop watermelon on the floor, all the bacteria transfer almost instantaneously. If you drop a drier food... Okay, well, that's yeah. because bacteria love watermelon. Yeah, that's... that's <laughs> if I can encapsulate, because I, I thought the study was fascinating. Your research hey. determined that there's no way to keep your food completely germ-free, but there are different degrees of germiness. The type of food matters, the surface it drops on matters. Is that correct? That's exactly right, Adam. Can we just throw a few scenarios at you, and you tell us, based on your research, how bad... Uh, it, it, it might be to eat these things. So say I have like a hard candy in my mouth and uh, it drops from my mouth uh, to the carpet. I, I would say that I would not eat that, again, depending upon who's been on that carpet and what they've been doing. Okay, what about toast with butter uh, dropped onto a tile floor? Uh, hard pass. Interestingly, we didn't see any difference between bread and butter, but we did see some transfer. And so uh, I would say uh, you're definitely going to get some transfer there. Okay. A ham sandwich <laughs> dropped in a puddle on the street. <laughs> uh, can I curse on this show? Absolutely. Sure. No f-ing way. <laughs> Here's one, and I want you to take your time and think about this. Toast with butter dropping on the floor of the bus station men's room underneath the urinal. <laughs> Again, no effing way. No, yeah. no, no. <laughs> okay, what if I drop a single piece of uncooked spaghetti vertically so that it lands just on one end and it bounces and I catch it? Uh, and my, my background is pasta circus. Uh, it lands and I catch it. What, what about that? Well, are you going to cook it in water first, uh, boiling water? Oh, yeah. That, no problem. I would totally eat that. Because uh. the boiling water will kill the bacteria. Oh, well, I and see. honestly, I mean, uh, a, a, a tiny piece of spaghetti dropped uh, on the dry end on the floor. Again, uh, a, a very, very low risk, even if I didn't boil it in water first. Okay. What about the hard candy in the carpet? What if I boil the carpet? <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this, uh, uh, what about, is there a five second rule for dogs? Because my dog will eat something that's been on the floor for several months. Oh my God, my dog will eat other dogs' poop. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. Yeah, but if prepared properly, that can be a taste treat. Uh, if, it's, if it's dropped quickly, uh, well. <laughs> Dr. Schaffner, I have jumped off a ski lift to recover a dropped potato chip inside of five seconds. And I see now that it was an unnecessary risk. Uh, clearly, your, your research will keep us all safer. I want to thank you so much. Uh, it was fun talking to you. Absolutely. It was my pleasure, Paula. Dr. Donald Schaffner is a food microbiologist at Rutgers University, and he has debunked the five-second rule. Dr. Schaffner, thank you so much for joining us at the Poundstone Institute. My pleasure, Adam.
of disappointing, wasn't it? I mean, I've really believed in the five-second rule all of these years. I, I, uh, it, as it turns out, probably three-quarters of what I've eaten, I wasn't supposed to. What about you, ma'am? Have you honored the five-second rule until this point in your life? If it's chocolate, it's, it's, it's fair game. Yes. If it's chocolate, chocolate it's, it's fair, fair game. game. There you go. You yeah. Know? Okay, what if, it was, what if it was melted chocolate? Would you get a straw or a spoon? No, I have ethics. I'm oh, you not, have ethics. Have, there we go. I have you, ethics. Right, there's a line. Yeah. I like to roll the dice. <laughs> I roll them on the floor and then I lick them. <laughs> Institute, we don't just talk about studies, we also conduct them, which is why our concession stand is just a food pellet dispenser that occasionally delivers an electric shock. What Paul is driving towards is the fact that, as you know here in our live audience, we're doing an audience survey today, and we're asking today about superstitions. So let me ask you, Paula, do you have any silly superstitions? I do. I'm not sure I would call it a silly superstition, but... Uh, I feel very strongly that if you write something in your calendar in pen, it will get canceled. <laughs> I'm telling you, it could, it could be your own wedding, and if you put it in pen, uh, you will get jilted. Uh, it, could be, it could be Christmas. You could, write, you could write Christmas on December the 25th, and you'll get like a sheepish phone call from Santa Claus <laughs> saying, we're not going to be able to make it that night. My wife scheduled something else. We've asked our audience if they have silly superstitions and what they may be, and our lab assistants are currently in the back room tabulating the data right as we speak, and we'll bring you the results as soon as they're ready. All right, it's time to bulk up the endowment, Paula. Who do we have to thank? Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. Achieving the perfect balance of a bold yet smooth taste that's not too sweet is the stuff coffee drinkers dream of. Bringing it to life requires finding the right beans and the right grind, then brewing at cold temperatures for at least 10 hours. Stoke is slow brewed, like all the best ideas. Find it in the refrigerated juice section. The other coffees were kind of starstruck around it. Oh my gosh, there it is, Stoke Coffee, the one they brew at cold temperatures for at least 10 hours. Hi Stoke Coffee! It's more comfortable in with the juices. It's time to continue our quest to get less stupid one study at a time. What's our next one, Adam? Next, we take a closer look at sexy scientists. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Paula, as an, as an extremely sexy person, I'm sure you've experienced the problem that many attractive people had, and that is not being taken seriously. I never thought that I was not taken seriously because of my sexiness. I, I, I figured it had more to do with the piece of toilet paper that I drag from the back of my shoe oftentimes, or, or because of my, my utter lack of knowledge. Ah, well put. That's quite possible. But our next guest discovered that there is a bias against scientists who are attractive, which is why they keep denying tenure to Fabio deGrasse Tyson. So let's welcome Anna Georgiou. She's a PhD student in psychology at the University of Essex in the UK. Anna, thank you for joining us on the Poundstone Institute. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. Okay, Anna, so I'm a scientist, and my work is considered excellent. Should I take <laughs> that personally? Well, depends on which way you look at it. I mean, on the plus side, it means that you probably look very competent and very trustworthy. And I might not discuss the downside at this point. <laughs> okay, so, so, so to, to clarify, you found that people tend to discount the work of scientists if they're too attractive. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. So um, 
attractiveness seems to, you know, give scientists more interest in their work, but decrease the perceived quality of their work, if that makes sense. So do you Uh think ugly scientists are just skating on their looks? (laughs) Yep, yep, you could put it that way. All right, let's talk about how you did this research. You you yeah. put photos of scientists in front of people and you ask people to rate their attractiveness and then mm-hmm. what? So Swipe if they found of, them believable? Yeah, more or less, yeah. So we took photos of scientists, both from the UK and US universities. And we had one group of participants look at all of these photos and rate them on social dimensions like you know attractiveness, how friendly does this person look, how honest does this person look, and then we had a separate group of people look at the same photos and rate them on two things. How much does this person look like someone who conducts accurate research, you know, someone who's a good scientist, versus how interested would you be in finding out more about the scientist's research? So a sort of interest dimension to it. All right, so tell the truth. Did you decide to do this really so you could just look at hot scientists all day? Well, you got me there. <laughs> <laughs> and let me ask you this. Were there a lot of hot scientists? Uh, no, no, there isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> so this study is, is is being published, is that correct? Yes, it has been published. And oh. uh, does that mean you're a good scientist? Can I not comment on that? <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much for looking at scientists so we didn't have to. <laughs> My pleasure. I appreciate your work, and I loved having you tell us about it. Thanks so much, Anna. Thank you so much for having me, and have a lovely evening. Anna Georgiou is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Essex. Thank you so much for joining us on the Poundstone Institute, Anna. Thank you so much. Bye. All right. Let's take a moment to hear about something you can listen to once this episode of the Poundstone Institute is over. Up first is the morning news podcast from NPR. When news moves fast, up first is the quick morning update on what happened and what you need to start the day. Wake up with Up First every weekday morning on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Longtime followers of the Poundstone Institute know that for the last five decades, we've been compiling data for the PPP, the Poundstone Psychological Survey. You may pshaw, but we believe it's the world's most sophisticated personality profiling tool ever put created. We've created millions of responses and cross-referenced them with 167 distinct personality types. And we like to invite well-known people on to help us add to our database. This week, our test subject is author and storyteller David Sedaris. His new book is Theft by Finding. David, welcome to the Poundstone Institute. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm honored. Now, your new book is a collection of your actual diary entries? What's the Yeah, one? I've been keeping oh. a diary for 40 years. Wow. So. It must have gone through. I mean, I had like a little pink one with fur on it when I was a kid. You must have gone through more than one diary book. Gosh, I think I have 165 of them. Wow. What's the one thing that amused you when you went back and found it in the diary later? Well, I've always written down every joke that anyone ever told me. So there were a lot of jokes that I'd written down that I forgot about. One joke that I I liked was, uh, do you know how to bake toilet paper? No. No, but I know how to brown it on one side. (laughs) It's such a good kid joke. You know, but you have to know what you have to know a little bit about cooking for it to work. Yeah, yeah. So cooking-oriented kids will like yeah. that joke. 
Yeah, like a little Julia. A, Ju- a Julia child. A, a, a Julia, Julia child. child. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Julia toddler. Um, no, wait a minute. Aren't you just taking a, bre- a break from signing books right now? Yeah, yeah. I'm in a bookstore. Uh, in, I'm at Book People in Austin, Texas, and I just uh, they have a room in the back that I ran into. But yeah, no, I'm I'm signing books. I'm on a book tour. Oh, so now I how, how many books are you s- signing? Oh gosh, Lee, I don't know. Last night I signed books for six hours, and the night before that I signed books for nine hours. Do your hands get tired signing books for hours? No, plus I'm, my hands don't get tired because I'm talking. You know, I mean, I'm writing in somebody's book, but then I'm talking to them for a while. So yeah. it doesn't, uh, no. Is it, when you sit down and sign stock, you know, you sit down and sign, go to a warehouse and sign 10,000 books, then your hand hurts. Honestly, have you ever gone to a warehouse and signed 10,000 books? I sure did. No. Yeah. All by yourself? They had somebody to, you know, to feed me the books. Uh-huh. Not after they've been on there. the floor, I hope. <laughs> we were talking to a scientist earlier that knew about, uh, they did experiments and whether or not the five-second rule works for food. If you've dropped something on the floor, how quickly, you know, you should eat it. It turns out you shouldn't eat it. Really? Well, but I'm not. You know, I, a lot of times I'll have, when I'm signing books, I'll have candy or something and I'll offer it to people. And I see them, and they're like, no, and they're afraid to touch something. They're afraid it might have germs. You could put a bowl of peanuts next to the urinal, and I would eat the peanuts. That is just a weird image. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you want the food bad enough, it doesn't really matter where it's been. Well, I think part of that is because you're spending like 15 hours signing books. Yeah. And so you're so damn hungry that you're when like, you give go, me a urinal full of peanuts. Yeah, when you get into the urinal and there's peanuts there, you're just, you know, what I'm concerned about, David, is that a lot of your needs aren't getting met during the signings. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, 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 I was reading an article uh, that you wrote for, I believe it was the New Yorker uh, the other day, and I just, you know, your, your choice of words is just so beautiful and then to hear you describe peanuts by a urinal (laughs) i just that's going to be my takeaway you you know like i don't write a diary but if i did i would go back to my house tonight and write dear diary david sedaris told me he would eat peanuts by a urinal (laughs) and i'd look back on that years from now and go yeah he did say that (laughs) (laughs) okay david it's time to take the poundstone personality survey are you ready to go Indeed. Okay, well, you answer these questions, and then we get to tell you your personality type. It's very, very revealing and enlightening. Okay. All right, question one, David. Have you ever trespassed at any time in your life, and why? I trespassed not very long ago um, because I was picking up rubbish at the train station where, where I live in England, and there was a sign that said, no trespassing, but there was rubbish on the other side, and I'd cleaned all the parking lot, and I needed to finish the job, and so I trespassed, and then the police came, and uh, it, uh, it, it, and it turned into a thing. You were, but you I were thought cleaning my reason, the trash out of the parking lot? There's just so much of it where I live, and it just drives me crazy, and so I wrote a letter complaining about it, and then I thought, well, if you want something done, just do it yourself. So I spend hours and hours a day picking up trash on the side of the road, and this is a train station that I use, and there was a lot of trash there. 
people in England, like, they go to the parking lot, and then they clean out their car. So they open, they throw all the cans and bottles and all the trash. They clean their car while they're at the parking lot, but they just empty the trash onto the pavement and then drive away. Well, you know, a lot of times when people, um, you know, commit a a, a, a crime and they have to do uh, community service, they'll be sent out to pick up trash. So the good news is um, you can probably do a crime or two and you've really already paid. Well, a lot of people think that that's what I'm doing is my community service. (laughs) All right, question number two, David. Uh, If you could choose between living to be 150 but always having terrible B.O. and living to 90 but always smelling great, which would you choose? I'd live to be 90 and always smell great. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I'm uh, 100%. All right, question number three. What's the one word you wish you could eliminate from your vocabulary? Uh, let's see. I know what it would be from other people's vocabulary. What, what from other people's vocabulary would you want to eliminate? Awesome. awesome. I can't bear that word. And I, I went to the Great Wall of China once, and that was awesome. And, I've, you know, a couple times in my life that's applied, but if I want... Uh, a small coffee, and the response is awesome. I, I just don't. It, it makes it makes me uh, sick. Adam, uh, could you please run David's responses through the hmm. database so that we can find out what, 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 what kind of personality he has? All right, here we go. Let's turn on a tabulator here. David, I wish you could see it. It's quite a machine. And here are the results. Uh, okay, all right. Yeah, this looks exactly right. David, I could have guessed these results. You are personality number 159, ring-tailed lemur. You are a keen, highly intelligent problem solver who can find food on his own, day or night, and many people have looked at you and commented, nice tail. (laughs) David's new book is Theft by Finding. David Sedaris, thank you so much for joining us on the Poundstone Institute and taking the Poundstone Personality Survey today. Thank you so much. I feel wiser. All right. Thanks, David. Bye. We'd like to thank our sponsor who brings you this message, Discover Card, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes that there are some things that you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover Card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. Okay, we have the survey results. This week we asked our audience, do you have any silly superstitions? And here's the number, 68% of people say they do. And we've asked some of them what their silly superstitions are, and here are some of the answers. Do you have a superstition that you know is silly, but you do it anyways? Yes. If sharing a drink, you can't have three people on it. It has to be two or four people. It's bad luck for the youngest in the group if there's three. 
boy, there's a tortured story behind yeah. that somewhere. That sounds, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. would. I, that's the kind of thing you expect to come from Eastern Europe. Honestly, yeah, yeah, honestly. Uh, yeah, the younger one will suffer now. <laughs> uh, do you have a superstition that you know is silly, but you do it anyways? Yes. What is it? Don't put your purse on the ground or all your money will run out. <laughs> It's something to think about. Uh, do you, uh, all right, uh, do you have a superstition that you know is silly, but you do it anyways? Yes, I purchased two tickets to every show I go to, thinking that by doing so, the date will materialize. <laughs> wow! Well, I know where that person's sitting, right beside that empty chair. <laughs> Oh my God! What, was it you, sir? This guy right here? The, this this man with the mustache and the and the white hair? Wasn't you? Nope. You didn't. You didn't. I'm the date. Oh, you're the date. Oh, my mistake. I figured it was the empty chair. Well, that was for the third person. They uh, shared a drink. <laughs> Always a mistake. You know it is. Um. All right. Do you have a superstition that you know is silly, but you do it anyways? Yes. When walking together, if two people walk on opposite sides of a pole, they will get into a fight. Often about why one walked on the other side of the pole. <laughs> and it says this is a Russian thing. It's a Russian thing. I thought a Russian thing was just f***ing up our election. <laughs> Yeah, sure. We, we, Trump and Putin yeah. walk on opposite side of Poland. Uh, that's why they call it the polling place. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> that does it for today's show. The distinguished chair of the Poundstone Institute is Doug Berman. Our undistinguished chair is Ian Chillock. Our folding chair is Mike Danforth. Our sunny in chair is Franny Kelly. Our King Louis XVI chairs are Steve Nelson and Anya Grundman. Special thanks to John Cohn, Liz Brown, and Tony Federico at Southern California Public Radio. Erica Reddick, Ken Lezebnik, photographer Bill Youngblood, and the folks at Nerd Melt. That's where we are. Our technical directors are Patrick Murray and Stephen Cologne. Live from the Poundstone Institute is produced by Urgent Haircut Productions in association with KPCC and is somewhat sheepishly distributed by NPR. You can visit us at poundstoneinstitute.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks to our head of research, Adam Felder. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week live from the Poundstone Institute. Are you serious? This is NPR?